0: City limits. This is Ben
1: Max from Gotham Gazette, and we are here the morning after the loan controller debate and two days after the public advocate debate, and we're joined by Bridget Bergen of WNYC Radio. Good morning. Good morning. Um, Bridget, you were on stage. You were there as one of the people questioning the controller candidates, Scott Stringer and Michael Faulkner. Uh, what were your takeaways from the debate? Uh,
2: there was a clear, I think... Oh gap between Stringer, who has four years of experience and accomplishments to talk about, um, and his opponent, Michael Faulkner, who seemed to be interested in serving the city and being a leader, um, perhaps less precisely within the office of Comptroller, and seemed to frame a lot of his comments as critiques of the mayor, critiques of Stringer, um, especially critiques of Stringer not being a, a active enough fiscal watchdog, um, but some of the ideas he offered or some of the approaches he suggested taking seemed it's, it's so far-fetched, to be fair, um, that it made you wonder how versed he was in the duties of the office
0: yeah he kept coming back to the budget critique you know he avoided the question about pensions came back to that and that was his refrain which made it that much more surprising that there wasn't a what sounded like a cogent answer to the question so what do you want to do about it when asked if he would cut anything he sort of instead of talking about you know the mayor's special assistance or any of the things that are like easy targets he said instead He wanted to talk about this deficit of payments issue with the federal government, and uh, I guess the idea that we're just going to stop paying our federal taxes.
2: Which was really a kind of jarring statement to hear someone who's running for public office say. I mean, it's something that he talks about a lot. Um, It's on his website. He said it to both of you when you sat down with him. Um, He talked about it with Errol Lewis when he was on New York One it's clearly something that he he has been thinking about and yet the idea that that a city elected official would propose as a solution to you know funding our unfunded mandates that we would simply stop paying the federal government the tax money that we owe just I, I mean, I, See, I, I can't even yeah, wrap my head around it. No,
1: it was one of the most, uh, or maybe the most interesting, bizarre moment of the debate. And I think uh, your fellow panelist there, Bobby Couza, sort of showed his <laughs> incredulity by saying, like, are you suggesting we just, you know, uh, stop sending tens of billions of dollars? Uh, but Faulkner sort of seemed to also indicate um, that he thinks that the president's sort of tax plan would be a real benefit to New York and Stringer saying, no, this would really hurt New York. Yeah. And Faulkner said, well, not the numbers I'm looking at. And you sort of had this moment of, okay, uh, I guess, you know, you've been doing an analysis of some kind.
2: Yeah, it, 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 you know, it was amazing. As the debate started, it initially felt like, oh, we're gonna be ahead of schedule, you know, time is moving, we're, we're on pace. And I had a question about um, the Trump proposed budget and tax overhaul plan that I wanted to pose to both of them because Stringer's office has done some initial analysis that would show, you know, the proposed budget would cost the city $850 million. That the uh, tax overhaul plan, you know, as as he actually ended up saying last night, would adversely impact primarily middle and lower income individuals. You know, something in the neighborhood of um, 60%. I'm going to skip my numbers because I don't have them in front of me. But you know, that being said, it was so striking to hear what sounded, at the moment, like you know, federal Republican talking points about these plans, without anything to back them up, coming from Faulkner, um, other than to sort of act as a cheerleader for them, and. In the office of controller, you need to be in a position where you really understand how these federal policies are both impacting you know, the city's budget, but also individual New Yorkers, because that will ultimately impact the city's budget. And the fact that they were so far apart on that was really striking. Um, I Am was I... also curious who Stringer, you know, Stringer has some, there's a limit to what he can do is these are federal policies, but I wanted to know who is, you know how is he trying to work with other state um, and local leaders to? I mean, obviously they're lobbying, but what other, what besides analysis are they trying to do to prepare the city should these types of cuts take place? That that was one of the questions that I wanted to ask.
0: Faulkner is a, you know, I mean, he's a charismatic guy. I think when he was clearly well prepped on an answer, he delivered it well. You know, the, the description of why he's a Republican, clearly an answer he's given several times, and you can fault the history around Frederick Douglass or other things, but he's, he's got that. He, where What he didn't have, I think, was um, any kind of a, a, a well-thought-out or at least a well-delivered answer on Rikers. He really stumbled over that. Maybe that's not that surprising, but there was some news in what Comptroller Stringer said on the Rikers question.
2: Yeah, it, you know, Scott Stringer has been ahead of the curve Um, as compared to the mayor when it comes to uh, advocating for the closure of Rikers Island. Last night when I asked him about it uh, and asked him if he supported the mayor's plan and the timeline, he said in fact he thought it needed to be done much sooner. He said three years, which is obviously a much more aggressive timeline and puts the pressure on the next administration potentially to actually do that. didn't offer a lot of concrete details in terms of how to get there talked about community planning, and talked about some of the uh, facilities that are located near courthouses, Um, I, I was struck by, in Faulkner's answer, and I tried to pin him down a little bit more on it, because his answer was, when I asked him if he supported the plan to close Rikers, he said, yes, but, and then talked about wanting to change the culture, and said it needed to be closed eventually. And is, when I asked him, so do you think the 10-year timeline is too long, he said yes. <laughs> but it, it was sort of like he wanted to, you know, he was going to say yes to everything and kind of without really being pinned down on anything. So Yeah, he,
1: he clearly, as far as I'm concerned, has not thought through a lot of policy issues and a lot of stances. Uh, he made very clear, I think, last night, as he has in the past, that he's sort of selling himself on Uh, what he called, you know, visionary leadership, that he is so powerful as an individual that he could sort of take the reins of the Comptroller's Office, or when he was running for mayor earlier this season, take the reins of city government and sort of, by his leadership skills and his sort of passion and his will, enact more change and build more consensus. And so he's sort of running on that. But when you dig below that, there's a lot of problems with his knowledge of city government and whether or not he has um, stances on things. You know, I thought one of the most interesting sort of telling moments is, or I think a couple actually was on the pensions. He sort of said, yeah, I I kind of like what Scott's been doing there. I really want to come back to the budget, as as Jared, as you said. Um, you know, but, and then he also said, you know, things like, you know, I think the, that the, lots of the people at the controller's office are doing a lot of good work on these audits and these things, but I can push it forward more and make change. And maybe that's true. I mean, that's where we sort of get at, you know, this question about Stringer and what the role of the controller is and, you know, audits versus policy proposals. Um, Stringer touted that he's done hundreds of audits, which are mandated, but he's done hundreds of audits and he said he's gotten I think a thousands or over a thousand of his, you know, recommendations agencies have have adopted, so he's trying to sort of sell his Yeah, that was a line of question. I think
0: one of your questions kinda of tapped into that there were questions about how aggressive his audits have been, whether it was too aggressive ACS. and then you know, what his ambitions are and his relationship with the mayor, the fact that he spent a lot of time criticizing the mayor, though Faulkner said he wasn't tough enough. Um, but you know, has has endorsed him. What did you think about how he handled, especially your, your question along those lines?
2: You know, uh, it, it's a question I think we had to ask because here is a can here's a person running for reelection who, you know, in his past two bids for office, there was all the speculation leading up to them that he was going to run for another office. So I think it's only fair to pose the question, you know, do you really want to be controller? Have you ruled out running for mayor? Um, you know, I think his answer was the sort of practical, safe answer, which was to say he'll criticize the mayor when he needs to criticize him. Um, that that is his job. That he's supposed to be someone who is, you know, a, a check on city hall. Uh, but did not dismiss the notion of ever running for higher office. Um, and then went to sort of go full circle and talked about why he, why he was endorsing bill de blasio um you know it, i think stringer will be someone to continue to watch you know someone who will be on the radar for the next election sure.
1: um i mean he definitely wants to be mayor there's no question about that he did basically what faulkner did this year he, right. he had been running for mayor in 2013 very early but yep. then saw some of the first polls or something and you know realized that wasn't the right game for him and and won, an, you know a remarkable uh, Democratic primary against Eliot Spitzer um, but he clearly wants to be mayor I think your question was great because he needed to be asked about whether he had been basically using the office to sort of politicize it and, and prepare for a possible run against Bill de Blasio if there had been an indictment in those investigations so you know that was a an important question and you know he said Which
2: is, you know it's, you can't ask the hypothetical like had there been an indictment <laughs> right. would you have run for right. mayor right. right and yet you do know that that circumstance would have i mean that obviously that would have changed it for any of the democrats who you know were saw nibbling around the edges of this race so
1: and then errol put him on the spot in one particular instance about whether he like you know particularly politicize you know certain investigations on, on ACS um, which Errol had written about in the past and, and all that um, before we move to the public advocate debate though let's talk just a little bit more because this is a theme in both about the incumbent sort of being put on the spot about how well they've held the de Blasio administration accountable my impression is that whatever some of the motives for stringer he's done that fairly well he has a good record to run on. I mean, I would say in comparison to public advocate Letitia James, he has a stronger record on that front. She's more of an ally with the mayor and, you know, her office is a little bit different. She doesn't have to be putting out these audits. Um so, you know, I think Stringer showed through the debate that he's on several issues, including, you know, what he touted maybe the most, the homeless shelter issue, uh, he's really, you know, brought some good checks and, and gotten some attention and, and highlighted some problems. Um,
0: yeah, have, he was have, very, in his language on the housing plan was very tough, I thought, I was kind of surprised by that. And you're right, I think if Stringer's going to have a problem in terms of how he's dealt with the mayor, it's, the, it's the, the dissonance that I think we're all dealing with, with how aggressively he's criticized him on NYCHA, on ACS, on homelessness, on a number of things. Um, and not just through audits, but also in the press and public presentations, and yet has I wonder if his endorsement of the mayor will be thrown back in his face, depending on how de Blasier performs, I suppose, in two or three years' time when we're talking about 2021.
1: Right, right. How did he seem to sort of, overall, do you think he was convincing, is
0: convincing, in his
1: argument that he's held the mayor accountable?
2: I mean, I think it it, it almost comes across more, you know, there's like a cheekiness about the fact that they both endorsed each other. It just feels so politically convenient. Uh, Because Stringer has been a pretty outspoken critic of the mayor throughout, especially the last two and a half years. Um, And I think he didn't necessarily pull punches last night. I think we're going to continue to hear him be critical of the mayor's affordable housing plan um, and potentially push more alternative policies. Um, And, you know, I think just the fact that the that we are having a conversation like this right now, thinking about how he, how critical he was of the mayor, without even really considering his opponent, just kind of goes to show you what the substance of last night's debate was. I mean, so much more of it was really Scott talking about some substance, and um, Stringer talking about some substance, and Faulkner talking about some ideas. Right. I think you know.
0: Looking at both debates this week, you can talk about kind of the impact. Um, I was looking up this morning, and apparently, 15,000 people watched the comptroller general election debate last time in 2013. It's about a little less than a tenth of who watched the mayoral debates that year. So, you know, relatively small viewership. But I think both the debates, you know, ably let people compare the candidates. You got a good sense of their competence, their ability to articulate their positions. Um, but I wonder about the goals of the candidates going into it. You know, obviously, uh, Tish James and Scott Stringer trying not to mess up, trying to demonstrate, maybe you know, have a chance to sum up their accomplishments and demonstrate maybe they have the ability to perform well in a, in a Merrill debate in a few years' time. Um, what do we think were the goals for Faulkner and for Polanco, two guys who frankly know they're not going to win um, and know this is not going to get a lot of coverage? So what, what did Faulkner want out of last night, and did he maybe get it?
1: I don't know. I'm not a hundred percent sure that Faulkner knows he's going to lose. Um, I, I, you know, he he comes across as someone who, who you know, has sort of supreme confidence in himself. Um, I don't believe there's been polling on this race. You know, I mean, he struggled to raise money after meeting sort of you know, some initial sort of had some initial flow of money into his campaign. I think actually still when he was running for mayor and then it totally basically stopped and he barely qualified for this debate. Um, so that's maybe one metric where he could judge that. But, you know, he's been traveling around the city. He's been visiting lots of NYCHA complexes. You know, he's got that orientation as, you know, sort of community-minded person. He's a you know pastor. He, so he might be getting a lot of good feedback where he goes. You know, we hear this from Nicole Maliotakis, you know, so he might not, know for sure that he's going to lose. I'm not sure. But I don't know, you know, I don't know that he's setting himself up for anything else. I mean, I think he would love to, as Bridget said right in the open, you know, I think he'd love to serve the city in an elected capacity, but I'm not sure really what his other goals might be.
2: I, I feel like he was, um, he knew he needed to be on the attack and yet I was surprised that he didn't come with more, you know, more sort of attack lines in his holster. Uh, he talked a lot about, he said a lot of things that if you've heard him speak before, you have heard him say. Um, I think Scott, I think the Stringer <laughs> came with the idea of trying as hard as possible not to engage. And I think he, it was successful. He really avoided it, except for his... The his fantasy. Yeah, yes, yeah, except yeah. for Fantasyland, <laughs> which was in yeah. response to uh, Faulkner talking about the... Uh, Not paying the federal government. Exactly. But there, was, Stringer, there was more
0: engagement in uh, public advocate yeah, yeah, There yeah. was more of a head-to-head feeling in that one, I yeah.
1: thought. No, I was just going to say quickly that at the beginning of the debate, I almost thought like Stringer was basically just going to... like. I mean, there were almost several times where like the camera panned a stringer after it Faulkner just, like, attacked him and he was just like, I'm good, you know, yeah. next question. Yeah, he did not yeah. take advantage he got fired of, up. Of, of the rule that you could respond <laughs> and
0: refer to by name. Yeah. I I little more deferred that, yeah. that several times. But
1: anyway, there was good substance in that one. And in the public advocate debate, there was also very good substance. These were... You know, very different than the mayoral debate, much smaller crowds and quiet crowds, and that was great. Um, so let's talk public advocate debate. JC Polanco, Republican candidate, challenging Tish James, incumbent. We should also mention there are a few other candidates on both ballots for controller and public advocate, but they were not on the debate stage. Um, but anyway, public advocate debate, Jarrett.
0: Uh, I thought, you know, I thought they were both were very well prepared, both handled pretty well. Um, on the mayor's side, I'm not sure who I would say won uh, the debate. I was um, struck by the fact that Polanco, though he is known, known to be not a fan of Trump, um, you know there, there is a clear ideological difference there. you know he loves charter schools. he thinks that you know the lefties in town are being too soft on discipline and perhaps the strongest words of the night were his description of the mayor's talking about police officers um, and that kind of surprised me that, that he went to saying that, um, that De Blasio referred to cops as, as bigots, which is a questionable statement. So I, that was that was really the thing that left out for me.
1: Yeah, and he also had a line about sort of like um, you know too much s- sort of social engineering type of thing, like the government is too involved. Talking about it, rent
0: regulation, which yeah. is uh, an amazing thing to say. And yeah.
1: so you know again, I mean, there's there is a you know more conservative sort of line of thinking that there are too many regulations on the housing market in the city, and if we sort of wipe them all away and allowed for a lot more supply to be created that the market would eventually stabilize. Lots of Democrats don't buy into that. Polanco also is pushing this idea of allowing NYCHA residents to a pathway to ownership of their units. Um, you know, kind of a significant proposal. And it was fascinating to me in the controller debate. Faulkner uh, sort of said he was into that. And Stringer even said he was sort of open to that idea. Right. That That was another sort of wow moment for me in the controller debate that Stringer sort of said it was an interesting possibility uh, on the NYCHA homeowner front.
0: On the public debate, mm-hmm. you know, obviously the, the question we knew was going to go to Tish uh, James was uh, how has she held the mayor accountable? Mm-hmm. And then I guess the corollary question of that is have her lawsuits, which has been kind of her calling mm-hmm. card, been an effective tool? How do you think she handled that question?
2: You know, I, I think it, it, her response... She she responded with passion that she would never apologize for being you know a voice for the voiceless. Uh, I think it raises a really important point about the office and the limitations currently of the power of the office. Um, you know she suggested that there was work going on within the city council to try and codify some of those um, that that standing for her. It, But that doesn't currently exist, which is why so many of these lawsuits have been tossed. And um, I thought Errol Lewis, you know, was fairly pointed in asking her, were these lawsuits about getting headlines or about actually getting something done? Uh, You know, she could point to some accomplishments, um, but... You know, it, it, it's it's the ongoing question about the office of the public advocate. What is the role it's supposed to play? Uh, you know, to what it, as it serves as a check on the mayor. You know, is it you know through policy or is it primarily through the bully pulpit? Um, and if it is the latter, you know, Tish James has not been. An incredibly visible public advocate throughout the past four years, there have been, you know, issues that she has gotten involved with, and on um, specific issues she's been out there. But, you know, she's certainly been very visible around the city council. But, you know, as compared to say, our previous public advocate, Bill De Blasio, I don't, I can't think of campaigns that she has waged that were really essentially campaigns from the bully pulpit in the same way that. Bill
1: Blasio did yeah I mean I think maybe something like you know um, universal free lunch is something she sort of banged the drum on
2: absolutely but you know
1: totally it's been a very different approach and she and her people defend this steadfastly we asked her when we had her on this you know podcast that um, how she's approached it and she's basically and and you know her defenders have said I use litigation. I pass more bills than any other, than all the other public advocates combined. Uh, I'm not out there having press conferences at city hall, throwing haymakers all the time about this FOIL request that didn't come in or this ethical lapse or whatever. From my perspective, especially you know, and the stuff we really focus on. We've gone to her and her office many times for comments on the mayor's ethical issues, which have been really well documented over the last several years. And virtually without exception, they've declined to comment. Now, does throwing comments in news stories mean you're doing a good job as public advocate? I don't know, but it is part of holding the mayor accountable is saying, you're not doing this the right way, or I have some serious questions about this. We've seen the same thing with the city council speaker, very, very hesitant to, to criticize the mayor's behavior. Um, the only thing that J- on that front that James has really put out there is the agents of the city, uh, clarification of these advisors for de Blasio, shielding the records with these outside advisors that you know he and his council basically said are more or less parts of the administration. And so she used that to her own defense, at the debate several times, by agents of the city. I don't know. I've never heard of this before, and that was something I really disagreed on. Um, but I think, you know, as you said, it's it's been fairly fairly quiet.
0: For me. Yeah, and you know, Betsy Gottbaum got a lot of criticism for that too during her tenure, and, and her comebacker was well. One, there's different ways to work as a public advocate, and James would say the same thing. And then the question of resources too, you know, which did fall precipitously during Mark Green's time, and has basically stayed pretty poor since. Um, And I thought it was interesting that the two candidates agreed that the system should be changed so the mayor does not control the purse strings on the office, Um, although uh, Polanco wants, I think, a ballot question on that, and uh, James said there could be a legislative fix instead. Uh, What I do wonder about that question of her being on the record is whether that will change now, that she will be, as of November 8th, a putative mayoral candidate. And one thing that she's come back to a few times where she might be forced to come on the record and it could be sticky is on property tax reform. She, mm-hmm. she brings that up un, kind of unsolicited, um, which is a perfectly legitimate policy discussion to have, but one that has the potential for a lot of different winners and, and losers. Um, and as a corollary to that, she also said, I think one thing she was asked in the lightning round to talk about something she would approve, and she said that the city has too many, too many um, bureaucratic barriers to development, slows down development which, given the discussion around rezoning, gentrification, displacement around town, is I thought a really interesting critique for her to make. Mm.
1: Any other... um, I mean, one thing I want to just also say is, you know, Polanco's got a lot of ideas, which I thought is great. And that was... I mean, he, among the three citywide Republican challengers to sitting incumbents, by far, has the clearest platform, uh, policy ideas, you know... Uh, he's got a whole election and government reform platform that includes changing the public advocate office, which you know he only got into a little bit in the debate. Um, but it, but you know he's he's got a lot of sort of clarity uh, where others haven't. Uh,
2: so full disclosure, I went to college with J.C. Polanco and we were friends. So and you can so call I, him by his first name. I, I can call <laughs> him by his first name. I've known him for a long time, um, and. I was really curious to see how he would do in this debate um, with Tish James. Um, he was the student association controller when I knew him, back, way back when. Um, you know, he's a smart guy. I thought he came very prepared. Um, I thought he, he's, even his humor was effective when he engaged with her, you know, talking about how he had voted for her <laughs> right. in the past. Right. Um, and a matlock line oh astray. and the, of course the matlock line you know he he was he was not afraid of engaging at all and i think he also showed an awareness that this was you know i think he described it as climbing mount everest
1: in december you know,
2: yeah summer. he he knows that he's facing a huge uphill battle you know in part because local Republicans are not doing anything to help him Uh, and yet like you said Ben he has some really interesting ideas he certainly is someone that you feel like should be part of a a bigger conversation Um, and I know that other folks have raised this idea you know was this even the right office for him to run for Um, because he seemed to have he seemed to certainly hold his own on that stage could he have been on another stage
0: yeah and we'll see that debate stage uh, one more time on November 1st, apparently the last citywide debate we'll have, uh, the second and final one between uh, Nicole Maliotakis and, and Bill DeBlazio, assuming she qualifies. Um, and I guess the question is whether it will only be those two, in any sense of where that, where that stands?
1: Well, uh, Bo Dietl, uh is very close to qualifying financially, so he's assured me and others in conversation since the first debate that he will not have a problem because he can put some of his own money in and make the million-dollar raise and spend thresholds. The question will be, does CBS uh, Channel 2, you know, invite him because it's at their discretion since he's not a part of the matching program. New York One decided to invite him, um, which I personally think was the, was the right decision, but... Um, having seen the first debate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's a big question around whether CBS invites Bo Dietl. Uh I asked a CBS representative that, um, and she basically said, we're not gonna do a hypothetical since he hasn't qualified yet, we're waiting, you know. Uh, very safe answer, but they also said, you know, we're reviewing what happened at the first debate with regards to the audience uh, as well. Well, that's so.
0: interesting. I think that you can't really talk about Dietl in the first debate without thinking about the audience. And so it, so I'm it assuming is. CBS will have an in-studio debate. I mean, I think so it's going to be at the path. CUNY
1: Grad yeah. Center. Okay. And right. I think they're planning on it being uh, not quite as small as the controller and public advocate crowds, which are, what, 20 people? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think a couple dozen. I think yeah, I think um, maybe a little larger than that, possibly, but it won't be a big auditorium full for sure.
0: Because right. with that, you know, I mean, I think that the first debate was problematic in many ways. But I think that if Dedeel hadn't had the audience into play, it might have been different. And you know, he is is on the ballot. If he does qualify, I think it'd be hard for CBS to turn him down.
2: Yeah, I mean, to me, what was so so striking about both the debate and what led up to the debate were the many. Uh, reports of Bowditch pledging to be mayoral, and you know that he was ready to have serious policy conversations on the debate stage, um, which would have been interesting because it would have been the first time throughout this entire campaign that we would have heard from that Bowditch. So I, to me, it was less surprising that he behaved the way he did because that is how he is been on the campaign trail the entire time he's been
0: running right i think for deedle being serious means not dropping an f-bomb right <laughs> I mean,
1: that's... so um deedle aside um november 1st is six days before election day yeah. you know i know that not necessarily that many new yorkers are paying attention before that so maybe it is a well-timed debate for people to say oh oh yeah there's a mayoral election like let me tune in here and then maybe it affects some people I don't know how much of a difference it makes either way, who's on the stage, the debate itself, unless there's some huge moment. Um, but, you know, there's still a race going on. We're less than three weeks from election day. Uh, I guess we're two weeks away from that debate today. Um, does Nicole Maletakis need to do something different here? Do, wh- you know, what what should she do over the next two weeks? Or what are we, what are we watching for here? Or is this sort of just... Um, People going through the motions
0: at this point, filling in the blanks. You know, I mean, she's done a fairly good job of identifying De Blasio's weak points. You know, she's run a, she's worked hard. Her ads are pretty good. Um, where people are sort of have sort of looked for her to take it to the next level is on the seriousness of policy and you know putting some details uh, on those on those platform pages. You know, if she can do some of that, it might not close the gap. As you said, what would be required for the last bait to have an impact would be for someone to screw up, namely Bill de Blasio, and it to be all over the you know, headlines. In like a big way. <laughs> in a big way. All over the headlines of last week. That's yeah. the only thing that would change it. That's not going to happen, but this is her chance to make a last impression for whatever is next for her, whether it's Staten Island President, whether it's Mayor in four years, whether it's whatever it is. And so showing that she can not just be the person who puts on the boxing gloves, but also can, you know, wield some real policy chops. I think that's what she's got to do,
2: and I think it, the thing to remember with an election is, it, th- there are, there is always the chance that something happens, global or local, that is of such consequence that it entirely changes the conversation. Um, I think that is actually a much bigger risk for Nicole Malliotakis, because she, as much as she wants to make this race a. You know, head to head with Bill de Blasio and not talk about the federal government. You know, if something comes out of Washington or if there's a foreign policy decision that happens that is a, of a, a magnitude that it has become the center of all conversation, that's going to be something that her campaign has to deal with more so than the de Blasio campaign, which has been feeding off of that for the entire year. So I think. I would be, if I were her campaign, I would be, you know, hoping for a very quiet couple of weeks, maybe a big Yankee win in the World Series (laughs) that she could taunt the mayor over for not supporting. Um, And then for a a unexpected but disastrous performance from Bill Delazio on that stage, which, you know, I I can't personally really fathom, but it would have to be something tremendous.
1: So, You know, on the policy front, I think lots of us who are really in this every day want more detail, want more detail. You know, I got in touch with her campaign the day after the debate and asked for more detail on like six things and got some. And they promised an affordable housing plan before the election. They said there'll be a property tax press conference on the 26th. Um, which is, by the way, the week the mayor is in Brooklyn, and I'm kind of wondering if she's going to do a property tax press conference outside of one of his houses because she's brought up you know, their differences in property taxes they pay. Um, but I'm actually thinking at this point, I'm sort of rethinking this whole thing a little bit. I just think she needs like two or three really big, splashy ideas. Like fleshing out an affordable housing plan at this point, I don't think it even matters. I think yeah. she needs like big, exciting headlines. I don't know. That's not my job in my world to figure out exactly what that is but i think now it's less about like lots of good detail she should have shown that a while back and now it's like you know can you figure out a way to propose the next you know couple of big things something like a i'm not saying the bqx is a great idea but something like a transportation project something like a cornell tech some you know some of these types of things and where we need to do it and how we need to do it
2: i I mean i think her challenge with that will also be that even though we don't know a lot about what Mayor de Blasio's second term will look like, we know that he plans to keep telling us over the next few weeks, and he will presumably time those announcements to step all over anything that would be coming out of her campaign. So you know, fighting for airtime, fighting for headlines is going to be a challenge for her, even if she does come up with a big idea. Uh, And as you said, you could argue that these are things that should have happened months ago that if you were going to have a big idea that was going to be the centerpiece of your campaign, that should have been something that you introduced and you were running on throughout the campaign. I mean, that's what pre-K was. Right,
1: right. No, that's a good point. And I think my last point here um, on that is you know, (laughs) she has released three video ads now. And they are pretty good, as you said, Jared. But the third one is, I think, called Why I'm Running. Right, and it, I just as soon as they put that out, I think it was like two days ago. I was like, "Wait a second, this is the third one. Why? Why wasn't this the first one? Wait, what happened here?" Um, so it's I all about the reveal. That's it's sort all about of the reveal. sort of indicative. Anyway, Bridget Bergen, thank you so much for joining us. Bye Jarrett, we'll thank talk you. more soon. Uh, and just to preview uh, our next episode, we have a few of the quote unquote other mayoral candidates joining us next week. So uh, be on the lookout for that. We'll be joined by a few of the other people who will be on the ballot besides de Blasio, Malia Takis, and Bobito.
0: Yes, listen hard.